Captain Kirk, we are nearing an uncharted star cluster. Thank you, Sulu. Mr. Spock, what do we know about this cluster? Its most significant feature is the star KIC 8462852. What's so great about that star? How come it doesn't even have a cool name like Arcturus or Seacrest? Does it have attractive women on it? Women cannot live on stars, Captain. We've been over that. I know, but how are we supposed to find any? We're getting off track. The salient feature of this star is the way it flickers and dims unlike any other star in the known universe. Maybe it has a lot of big... What are the the little things that go round and round planets? Moons. No, it's not moons. Could it be black comets? There is no such thing, Captain. How about interstellar worm cloud swarms? Also not a thing. Why is everybody else's thing a thing, but my things are never things? Most astronomical explanations fail because the dimming of the star never follows a pattern. It's random. What could do that? What could block the light of the star only occasionally on an unpredictable basis? Excuse me, Captain, but I was wondering if now is a good time to flush out the space toilets? I guess so, yeah. If they're really full, sure. It it sickens me that with our advanced technology, we still haven't figured out anything to do with human waste and flush it out the airlocks. Go ahead, do it. Just make sure we don't wind up flying through it like last time. It's not like there are car washes up here. Captain, a logical explanation has just crossed my mind about what could be obscuring the starlight. No time, Spock. Ensign Bardot wants me to look at her new bra. Her new barometer. Space barometer to measure the worm cloud swarms. The point is I'm very busy, so for the rest of you, here's the guy who went all the way to the alien megastructure and found out it was closed on Sundays. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, they didn't mention that on Yelp. Yes, a little bit later in the show today, we are going to talk about the alien megastructure. If you don't know about the alien megastructure, well, first of all, you're in luck because we're going to tell you what it is. But it is, it's out there. It is a star 1,200 light years away that flickers uh, and dims inexplicably according to no particular pattern. It isn't comets or moons or anything like that because then it would be regular. And, and, it, and anyway, it's acting up right now. It's very possible we'll all be dead tomorrow. I don't want to alarm people, though. It might not even know we're there. Uh, but anyway, we'll explain that with Lauren Grush, uh, science reporter for The Verge, later in the show. Right now, though, we are going to talk about President Trump's uh, trip to the various seats of Abrahamic religion. Uh, and joining us to do that, who better than Mark Silk, director of the Leonard Greenberg Center for the Study of Religion in Public Life at Trinity College. Um, so, uh, first of all, Mark, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you. And, you know, Colin, I thought that that intro was supposed to be an allegory of, uh, of Trump's trip, and now I'm really disappointed. <laughs> well, they're, 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 I mean, in either case, you could have orbs anyway. The orb might be the through line here. Uh, uh, let's, yeah, if you're going to go there. Who knows where the orb, the uh, Saudi Arabian orb, gets its mysterious power. It could be pulling it from some distant star. Um, or it could be a visitor from some distant star. Anyway, we'll come to that. So uh, we've got, uh, obviously, activity in Jerusalem today, but I think we need to back up uh, and talk about uh, his Riyadh speech uh, yesterday. This is uh, the speech where, well, actually, let's just hear a little bit of the speech. America is a sovereign nation, and our first priority is always the safety and security of our citizens. We are not here to lecture. We are not here to tell other people how to live, what to do, who to be, or how to worship. Instead, we are here to offer partnership based on shared interests and values to pursue a better future. 
So CNN having a little bit of problems there with the translation feed. But um, so, Mark, you know, first of all, this is a somewhat odd choice for your first presidential trip. Um, Usually you start out with something kind of easy. Mexico, maybe not so easy for him. Canada, maybe easy or European democracies where he's headed eventually. But he's walking right into one of the most complicated situations in the world right now, a kind of Gordian knot of competing interests. So much so that if you really do try to untie that knot, you really start realizing there are ways in which it's almost impossible, even for a fairly sophisticated mind, to kind of figure out whose interests compete with who on what specific terrains. Um, and, And none of that is really his specialty. So, so what's he doing there? Uh, you know, <laughs> that may not be a fair question. <laughs> it's an unfair. It's really an unfair question. I mean, I assume it's because uh, you know the people who are immediately around him, like uh, his son-in-law and and daughter, and uh, you know his 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 uh, former you know uh, estate attorney or whatever he is, you know, care a lot about Israel, Israel Palestine. Um, you know, it's sort of the family concern when it comes to uh, the outside world. And so uh, since the family concern or concerns are, you know, always uh, at the top of his list, that's where he's gone. Well, but he, he begins in Saudi Arabia where, I mean, he had extremely harsh language, not only for the Muslim world, not only for the overall concept of you know, Islam. I mean, he said, I, you know, in March of 2016 on CNN, I think Islam hates us. There's a tremendous amount of hatred there. But very specifically, he had problems with Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, highly critical of them, uh, particularly in connection with their dealings with the Clinton Foundation. He said Saudi Arabia and many of the countries that gave vast amounts of money to the Clinton Foundation want women as slaves and to kill gays. Hillary must return all money from such countries. Saudi Arabia giving 25 million, Qatar, all these other countries. You talk about women and women's rights. So these are people that push gays off build off, off buildings. Uh, these are not people. These are people that kill women and treat women horribly. And yet you take their money. He also said at various times that Saudi Arabia, more than Iraq, more than anybody, has the strongest connection to, to 9-11, an assertion about which he's not entirely wrong. Um, so he's also walking right into the mouth. Well, actually, we should also hear a little bit, and I know that you wanted to call attention to this. Uh, this is a little bit of the speech that he gave uh, in Ohio uh, in August of 2016. We will defeat radical Islamic terrorism just as we have defeated every threat we've faced at every age and before. But we will not, we will not remember this, defeat it with closed eyes or silenced voices. We have a president that doesn't want to say the words. Anyone who cannot name our enemy is not fit to lead our country. Anyone who cannot condemn the hatred, oppression, and violence of radical Islam lacks the moral clarity to serve as our president. So, I mean, yesterday he did not use the phrase radical Islamic terrorism, a phrase that he repeatedly said he wanted to hear Obama and Clinton use. He did use, I think he said, Islamic extremism. Well, according to the the actual text, Mm. um, was Islamist Mm. terrorism and extremism. And that's what, you know, his folks worked out for him. And, um, and, And he went off script to actually say Islamic terror. Uh, and then one of his aides, according to the New York Times this morning, said, um, 
you know, he's just a tired old guy. And so he, he uh, you know, he misstated it. It's hard to know exactly what he, he did. But I think, I mean, I just spent the morning, you know, sort of looking closely at those two uh, speeches. Mm-hmm. And the first one, it's not just a question of, you know, do we say radical Islamic terrorism? Do we say radical Islam? Do we use Islamist? It's how he saw how he change has changed, or how this speech shows him changing in terms of his whole view of Islam. This, the time before Islam is really the problem, mm. and and when he talks about you know working with with Muslims, he says you know if I can find some Islamic reformers, then we, we want to work with them. This time it's you know I'm not criticizing a great you know world religion. Um, and and uh, you've just got these alien, hostile people, these terrorists and and extremists, and you just have to get rid of them. Right. So I don't tell me if I'm. I mean, the shift that I, I feel I've I'm seeing here is he has a now pretty frequently stated preference for fairly autocratic, you know, extremely powerful rulers, you know, and he often will use a phrase he's applied it to Putin, that Putin can really run his country, he can really run it, by which he means, you know, plow over obstacles (laughs) and institutions (laughs) and laws and things like that. Um, You know, and he's now kind of cozied up to or expressed admiration for or extended a hand to um, Duterte in the Philippines, Erdogan in Turkey, Putin, obviously, and then yesterday, obviously, he's photographed with King Salman uh, and al-Sisi from Egypt. Um, uh, that's with all their hands on the glowing orb. And uh, what I what I see, uh, I could be reading this totally wrong, is that he might still have some real problems with Islam. He might still have some problems with Muslims. He might have some problems with a Muslim cell biologist trying to get back through uh, American customs to his family in Palo Alto after visiting Pakistan. He doesn't have a problem with extremely powerful men who run their country uh, with iron fists, which is a through line for the people that you know, he tends to be photographed with. Look, I um, I work for uh, an institution of higher learning, mm-hmm. um, and you know members of boards of trustees frequently these days, especially, like to say, you know, if only if only colleges, if only universities could be run more like a business. I think that you know what what Trump has given us is is the is the view you know if only government could be run more like my business, uh, where you know you've got one guy at the top and and uh, and everybody else works for him. I mean he clearly you know the FBI director is supposed to work for him, be be loyal, mm. and uh, and likewise. I mean there was some congressman who said you know a couple of months ago you know well we're working for Donald Trump. <laughs> I think that's his model. I. I Maybe I, I know that you feel like I'm uh, subjecting him to, to more exegesis than his words will withstand. Um, but I, I was just trying to extract from him what his overall thinking about the Muslim world is. Now, to be fair, it's often difficult to figure out what American leaders think about the Muslim world because often they haven't thought about it very hard. I mean, Obama being an exception, I think, to that. But you know, you, obviously, he's he's in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia is the cradle and exporter of Wahhabism or Salafi or whatever you want to call it. You know, talk about radical Islam. That that is radical Islam. It's a very radical version of Islam, which has informed the views and philosophies of Al Qaeda of ISIS. These are both Sunni movements. Right. Um, and, and so there he is there. You know? um, and I, 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 I'm trying to understand that. It, it seems to me if you have a critique of terrorism as having been informed by radical Islam, 
and, and I know you don't want to be like a bad guest or something. Maybe it's the wrong place to bring it up. But, but I just sort of wonder about that. You know, he obviously had very disparaging things to say about Iran. Not all those disparaging things were wrong either. Uh, but it, it seems at a time like this, if you were going to really examine the roots of, of Islamic terror and pull it out by its roots, you have to talk about, well, where do these philosophies come from? And you have to acknowledge the fact that the Saudi Arabian government essentially, you know, incubates them. As far as I can tell, you know, Donald Trump knows one thing um, <laughs> about Islam uh, or, or at least about the Middle East, and that's that Iran is bad. Yeah. Um, that's, it's been bad. You know, the, 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 the nuclear deal was the worst deal in the history of, of world diplomacy. Um, they are the prime... Uh, instigators or supporters among nation states of of, uh, of Islamic terror, or whatever um, you know. Th- so, so, so that that Iran is the great Satan there. Even as as uh, I think you know, y- you point out, they just <laughs> they they have regular elections and they actually reelected their moderate uh, president. And so here you are in Saudi Arabia, uh, y- you know, which is which is hardly a democracy. Um, you know, not not acknowledging anything about about what one thinks of as as democratic values. So Iran's really bad, and I think the other thing to say, and maybe you know, uh, to give the devil his due, or, or or to recognize it, is that there are um, people, Muslims, who have done terror uh, terroristic acts in the name of Islam, who are Sunnis and Shiites, mm-hmm. and so. You know, to the extent that there are radical movements uh, on both sides of this great Islamic divide, um, that's true. Well, yeah, yes. Although yesterday's speech was very Sunni rock, Shiite suck. Um, right. And, and I just, for, just for the benefit of people at home, I mean, if we're sort of going to put these two regimes on a continuum, I mean, in Saudi Arabia, they have as little domestic political freedom as can be achieved by an autocratic government. I mean, they essentially don't have elections. They have municipal elections. Those are the only elections they have. In in all other, it's illegal to dissent from the government. Um, Alternative political parties are illegal. You can go to prison for having or starting or being in a party that doesn't support uh, the royalty there. Uh, It's about as airless uh, a totalitarian system as you can find on the globe. Iran is not a free country at all, but you know, and and certainly on that continuum, they're still over towards the repressive of their people side. But yeah, they did have an election with Rouhani, and one of the things that I think is hard for people to grasp here is that one of Rouhani's biggest problems with his own people, if he was going to lose that election, he was probably going to lose it about the horrible Iran deal, where his people think he gave too much away. <laughs> <laughs> Which is an irony when you consider Trump's position on it. There are many ironies here, but you know, look the great the the great evil force that 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 is this is really the other thing that Donald Trump certainly knows is that ISIS is bad. Mm-hmm. Well, ISIS is not Shiite by any stretch no. of the imagination. No, they, they, they are, are conducting pers- a genocidal campaign against exactly. Shiites. So, and you know, and if and if ISIS draws its ideology. And ISIS is not highly sophisticated theologically, but if it draws its ideology from anyone, it's from you know Saudi Saudi Wahhabism. So, you know that. But this is where I think trying to parse what what Donald Trump is thinking about the Islamic world and the roots of of of, of radicalism there um, makes limited uh, sense. Right. 
We should say that ISIS has been somewhat active in Saudi Arabia. I mean, King Salman is willing to join in condemnations of uh, ISIS because they regard his regime as a bejeweled harlot. Uh, and and so they've you know they've taken the battle uh, to Saudi Arabian grounds as well. That's what I mean by this area being kind of a Gordian knot. It's very hard hard to figure out sort of you know where each thread and it leads to and from. Well, so let's now let's fast forward over here. He's uh, he's in Israel now, um, and in in Israel he has a different kind of agenda, a different set of agendas. Um, it'll be the first time we really get to see what kind of relationship he's going to have with Netanyahu. Um, it, I mean, the, it's replacing a fairly adversarial one, uh, the one that Obama had with Netanyahu. What are you looking at or for in, in those dynamics? Well, I don't think that – I mean, the problem for anybody trying to find out new ways of going about uh, solving the Israel-Palestine problem is that there are no new ways if you uh, really nail yourself into a two-state solution. A two-state solution was worked out. The basic grounds for it were worked out uh, in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and Trump is more or less, even, even though when, when Netanyahu visited and he sort of said two-state, one-state, lots of difference, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, yeah, that's still the American position. And among other things, that means uh, the final status of Jerusalem has to be negotiated. So when they talked about, you know, we're going to I'm going to visit, uh, you know, the Western Wall with Netanyahu and, and the State Department then says, no, 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 <laughs> you don't do that because that acknowledges Israel's uh, sovereignty over, uh, you know, East Jerusalem. And we don't do that yet. And Maybe he'll bring Netanyahu there. You know, that would be, you know, a démarche for American policy. But it's just that there isn't much room for maneuver. What you have in the Israeli cabinet are right rightists who say, um, you know, no more two-state solution. It's going to be Israel. Uh, we'll figure out either how to get rid of the Palestinians or make them permanent second-class citizens. And that's that. That's a radical solution. Um Trump hasn't really been prepared to go there. Right. And and I mean, we were talking about this before the show started, that Trump likes to think of himself as and to present himself as a paradigm breaker. You know, like whatever old frame you were operating within, I'm going to come in. I see things a very different way. I'm a deal maker. I'm a businessman. Uh, and so I am going to look at this with a set of eyes that no one has ever looked at it with before. Um, the difficulty here is, as you say, I mean, if you're going to do that, you're either going to propose something that's very unpalatable to the Israeli right or very unpalatable to the Palestinians and any Arab world backers they have. I mean, it, like, what's the thing, I guess, would be the question. Yeah. And, you know, it's important to rem- remember that that the two presidents, you know, maybe three, who've worked hardest at a solution, uh, Jimmy Carter uh, with Sadat and Begin, uh, then Bill Clinton um, in the 90s, and to some extent uh, Barack Obama, although I think to a lesser extent. I mean, those presidents immersed themselves in the details. I mean, they got down so far into the weeds uh, in trying to solve this uh, that, um, you know, it's a testimony to their uh, Zitzfleisch that they were able to do that. You know, Zitzfleisch is not, uh, let us say, Donald Trump's forte. And how he, you know, who he's got to do 
such a negotiation, if one were to be made, I don't know. Um, it's 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 hard to imagine. But sometimes you, you know how the Gordian knot was uh, was actually untied, it was cut through it, exactly. Sword. And and I th- and I think to the extent that there are Israelis and Palestinians who think that Donald Trump is the guy. Um, he's Alexander the Great. He's the guy who marches in with his sword, cuts the knot. That's that, and and doesn't get down into you know into the details of how the knot was tied. So uh, you know I, I I'm no fan of Donald Trump's, but but that may be why there is you know other than the, the, that they're afraid of him uh, or afraid of what he could say or do to them. Um, I think you know they think well okay we've had we've had detail men. And uh, now it's time, you know, for the for the grand master. Right. And I, the other thing that I think we have to acknowledge is we'll never really know what kinds of conversations were had. I think in Saudi Arabia, my guess is that we do know mostly what conversations were had. They were about money. They were about business. They were about things that expressed themselves in, in these tremendous uh, deals that were announced at the time of, of the uh, of his vis- visit there. I, I don't know how much other stuff about things like human rights and freedom of the press, <laughs> something that he isn't not even all that keen on anyway, um, would have been talked about behind the scenes. Here, I, I do think that if Netanyahu has a problem with Trump, we're not going to know it. We're not going to know it during this visit. I, I, although he hasn't been embarrassed in the past, particularly with Obama, to let people know when he's unhappy. My guess is this time he lets Trump be Trump, and then if there's a problem, tries to work it out through back channels. Yeah, and it's worth uh, noting um, that, you know, in preparation for this visit, Netanyahu had to beat up the member of his, members of his cabinet to come and, and greet Trump at the airport because, you know, Trump wasn't going to shake their hands, so why bother? Um, you, you know, there, he's got a bit of a rebellion against Trump on his right. I think he, he likes that, actually, uh, because he's always been happy uh, to hold his his position um, by saying, "Well, the Americans made me do it. The Americans made me do it." And and if the and the danger, one of the dangers was that if if Trump really turned out to 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 have an administration that took the positions he took as a campaigner, including you know moving the embassy and so on, um, then uh, Netanyahu wouldn't have been able to play the American card. So we're talking to Mark Silk uh, about uh, the uh, Trump world tour of monotheism or mono- monotheistic wellsprings. Uh, if this is Tuesday, it must be Bethlehem. Um, and so our, the last place, and let's be honest, most of these conversations have had nothing to do with religion of any kind. They've had to do really with force uh, in the case of Saudi Arabia and and real politique or whatever you want to call it. In the case of Israel, he's not walking around with you know, uh, a, a Bible on one, in one hand and the Torah in the other. He just isn't. That, that's not what this is about. But when he goes to see the Pope, I think it's hard to see the Pope <laughs> and, not, and not have religion come up one way or another, or at least the ways in which this particular Pope sees uh, belief and faith expressed in the details uh, of the physical modern world. Um, I would imagine, and I think you would too, that the Pope is going to press him on some things. Well, I think the Pope... There's no question that the Pope cares very deeply about two issues um, that have also engaged the Trump administration. Uh, one is immigration, uh, and the second one is global uh, warming, climate change, um, where the Pope issued a very powerful 
uh, encyclical, the only encyclical of his papacy so far, uh, uh, on on climate change and and has said strong things in favor of Paris. So, you know, I would expect uh, Pope Francis being Pope Francis to say something about both of those things uh, to Donald Trump. I think the, the problem is, um, you know, for all of us outsiders, uh, is he's likely to say those things in private. When, when, when Obama visited uh, the Vatican uh, a couple of years ago, um, they had a long conversation for an hour, um, but nobody <laughs> ever learned uh, what went on there, and it, it not much leaked out. Um, on the other hand, when the Pope came to Washington, uh, there were reports uh, put out, uh, I'm not sure exactly by whom, uh, that, that, uh, that, that Francis bent uh, Obama's ears on religious liberty. So uh, we may be surprised. Right. We're going to take a break in just a second. Not quite yet, uh, but when we come back, I've left a little time for phone calls. They can be about the things that you've been he hearing us talk about, uh, but uh, or they can be about something else. Uh, our number, 860-275-7266. You might as well make the call now. We're going to go to a break in just a second. Get uh, high on the list. 860-275-7266. I would imagine, just to make a final point here about Pope Francis, that in, in, I mean, there are many ways in which, and you've just articulated them, he and Donald Trump are going to bump heads about climate change and probably immigration. But, you know, more than immigration, immigration ri rises for me to a, a more encompassing concern of the popes. And we could go back to that clip from Riyadh that we played at the beginning of our conversation where he begins, America is a sovereign nation, and our first priority is always the safety and security of our citizens. Um, and, and he goes on to talk about that. So which is a, a, a toxin that he, I mean, T-O-C-S-I-N, that he rings quite frequently. Um, and to me, that's right at the heart of what Pope Francis is trying to address right now. That no, you're not, a, I mean, you may think of yourself as a sovereign nation, but there are obligations and callings as human beings um, that, that supersede your concerns as a sovereign nation. If we continue to think about ourselves that way, whether it's in the context of climate change or immigration or, or uh, economic justice or water rights or you name it, we're doomed. That the, the, the salvation, the literal salvation, since he's pope, of this globe is to stop thinking that way. I, I would assume that'll be something also that he bends Trump's ear about. I think so. I mean, and, and I do think that... that um, specifically with respect to Paris and staying in. Um, I mean, that's a concrete, straight-up thing that, 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 that the administration is facing right at this moment. And, and Francis reads the papers. Mm -hmm. Well, also, you can say, look, you've broken every other promise you made. <laughs> Why not break this one? This is a good one to break if you're going to break one. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll take some calls if you've got them. 860-275-7266. What have you seen so far uh, in uh, the trip around the world? Or it's not around the world, the trip through the world of President Trump. What are your concerns back home, too? 860-275-7266. All 
All right, we are indeed back. This is the Monday Scramble. We're attempting to do it without Betsy Kaplan, which is always risky, but she's uh, got a family event, a family celebration, uh, taking up her time today. Joining me in studio is Mark Silka, director of the Leonard Greenberg Center for the Study of Religion in Public Life at Trinity College. If anybody has a comment or a question, uh, our number, we're only going to do this for a little while uh, because I have to talk uh, about the alien megastructure, uh, which is perhaps either less or more alarming, Uh, 860-275-7266 is the number to call right now, 860-275-7266. So, um, yeah, so obviously there are all kinds of uber narratives or meta narratives uh, sitting over this trip, Um, and one that you read about and hear about a lot is, well, he's going there, but he can't get away from his troubles back here. He's got troubles back here. Um, we know what those troubles are. Um, some of those troubles do infect in various ways some of the visits he's making, probably most specifically in Israel, where if you believe the reporting so far, and the reporting now has been pretty extensive, he may have accidentally given away the fact that intelligence about ISIS was available uh, in a certain form. That certain form could be traceable back, if you believe the reporting, to an Israeli asset. That Israeli asset may have been compromised. Uh, but there are ways in which it inf- But it, it mostly puts a lot of pressure on him, as you were suggesting during the break, Mark, to come home with some trophies. Now, his sons are very good at coming home with trophies. They just shoot animals and bring them home. Um, he needs a different kind of trophy, a different kind of win. So wh- what would be a win for him? Well, you know, he brought home money from the Saudis. Right. The Saudis are going to pay for the infrastructure improvements, <laughs> evidently. Um, you know, I think, and and also, you know, he was able to call attention to this uh, center for, you know, terrorism studies or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever tracking station in, in Saudi Arabia. I, I suspect he's going to want to come back with uh, something that looks like a restart in uh, in the Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. Um, and, uh, you know, there have been many restarts, and, and none of them have gotten anywhere, but, uh, but that's a possibility, and, and uh, you know, I think, I think it has mattered to him, uh, and, and he made that clear when Netanyahu visited, you, you know, that, that, that he wants to try to be some kind of a broker of a deal, and if anybody knows about brokers of deals, he's got to have some relation, uh, relationship with the Palestinians. So not very exciting. Uh, there is that. Um, as far as the Pope is concerned, you know they have common ground on uh, on you know abortion, and and he's he's a convert to uh, anti-abortion politics, um, and religious liberty as it relates to that. So he can say we had a good talk about all of that and the importance of uh, you know recognizing uh, you know the right of of Catholic uh, nonprofits not to. Um, uh, provide contraception to their female employees. I mean, you know, there there are some things like that that he can do. I, I don't know that there's much that you ever take back from the Pope right. other than basking in, in, in Francis's, uh, you know, high stature. I mean, I think he's got more moral authority than any other figure uh, on the world stage today, and not just because he happens to be Pope, but because he happens to be Francis. Um, yes. I mean, the Vatican City is chock-a-block with uh, souvenir shops, so... He can get snow globes, you know, something for Baron. Um, yeah, it's harder to bring something back from there. I mean, the Pope, you know, I mean, Stalin famously said, how many divisions has the Pope? Uh, the Pope just, he's the Pope, you know. Now he has whatever authority he has on that basis. Um, all right, so, um, all right, let me just go to the phone phones here. We cut uh, just a few minutes to do that. So here's Mark in Nagatuck. Hi, Mark. Hey, how's it going, Colin? Um, you know, I've I, 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 I just been like, 
all over the place lately, um, thinking about, you know, um, the importance of, like, facts and science and intelligence and everything. It seems like there's been an assault on that lately where, you know, we'd rather have someone, you know, we, we, we can relate to someone who's talks like us, walks like us, uh, uh, rather than has um, facts at, at their at, at, at their fingertips. It's just, it's, um, I don't know, I, lately I just feel like, you know, sometimes the barstool profits are um, winning over. <laughs> well, the Barstool Prophets tend to have the last word about things. Um, well, you know, Mark, one thing that I would just, I don't know, I don't know how to respond to that. It is sort of the, the $64,000 question of our times in, in a way. One thing that I'm just kind of astonished by, you know, well, I was sort of sending some notes out to Jonathan, our producer today. He was sharing them with Mark, and Mark was saying, you're trying too hard to make any real specific sense out of some of this stuff. It's not really meant to be dissected when Trump says these things. You know, they're not necessarily subject to rigorous analysis. But I'm just I just want to play this clip. This is uh, not uh, Donald Trump. This is our secretary of commerce, uh, Wilbur Ross, uh, also at these meetings in Saudi Arabia. There was not a single hint of a protester anywhere there during the whole time we were there. Not one guy with a, a bad placard. Instead, but, but Secretary Ross, that may be not necessarily because they don't have those feelings there, but because they they control people and don't allow them to come and express their feelings quite the same as we do here. In theory, that could be true, but boy, there was certainly no sign of it. There was not a single effort at any incursion. There wasn't anything. The the mood was a genuinely good mood. And at the end of the trip, as I was getting back on the plane, the security guards from the Saudi side who'd been helping us over the weekend all wanted to pose for a big photo op. And then they gave me two gigantic bushels of dates as, as a present, a thank you for the trip that we had had. That was a pretty from the heart, very genuine gesture. And uh, it really touched me. All right. So first of all, question, what's he going to bring back? Wilbur's bringing back two bushels of, of dates. So there's your answer there. But, you know, I mean, that, I really had my jaw on my chest when, when I first saw that clip because, I mean, really, we know that in Saudi Arabia, although there are occasionally little small protests, people get arrested immediately. <laughs> Most of the people who are dissidents, who have expressed any dissent at all, are in prison. And you can be there's one guy who's locked up right now who's facing 10 years and a thousand lashes. They also, they beat you, they, they whip you um, for being. Well, you know, the, the, the thing that, that made my drop was like, how many days ago was it when the security guards for the pre president of Turkey beat up protesters in front of the Turkish embassy in Washington? Right. I mean, like, how do you even go there? Right. I, I just was astonished by that. It did, just to... <laughs> to profess some kind of agnosticism uh, about why there are no protests, that, you know, maybe it's the repressive environment. Maybe they just really like the way things are. Well, no, it's the repressive environment. The, this is, as I said before, 
a country where there is as little domestic freedom as they can possibly achieve. (laughs) I mean, this is it. You know, this is, uh, I mean, it sort of combines uh, theocracy with incredible totalitarian techniques. Uh, They've they've perfected it. Um, All right. Well, quick call, a quick conversation with Justine, and then we're going to have to move on to outer space. Hi, Justine from New Milford. You're on the air. Okay, um, I'm just commenting on your the reference to the solutions to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, mm-hmm. and um, an increasingly non-radical solution, of course, is the creation of one democratic state. There, there's increasing um, support on the ground, and even among Palestinians and Israelis, uh, the country is essentially one country. As the former mayor of Jerusalem, Marin Benveniste, said, "This is an egg that can't be unscrambled. It's one country. There's just one." Uh, people dominating another. And so to put that out as a not particularly radical solution anymore, and even though Trump may uh, trivialize it when he goes one state, two state, the one state thing is the only direction that really can uh, bring about a sustainable peace from close observers like myself, who spent lots of time working in the Middle East. But um, the other part is that, um, you know, the the BDS movement is uh, moving along very nicely in a way that is uh, reminiscent of the South African uh, end of apartheid. And so I think this would be good to give it more play. Well, I mean, uh, first of all, you obviously thought about this a lot and have some real expertise in it. So so first of all, can that any of that happen with Netanyahu at the helm? Is he willing to make enough concessions to make such well, a thing possible? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that um, the shaming of Israel is really the thing that um, uh, Israelis fear the most, including Netanyahu. So that's as, as um, actors and prominent people and groups refuse to, to perform there as uh, any uh, government-sponsored um, cultural events come here and people protest constantly. And then increasingly as churches and um, various uh, corporations don't want to be, at least in the West Bank, um, and including in within the disappearing green line. Um, so I, it'll be a long process, as it was in uh, ending South African apartheid. But, um, for example, um, Omar Barghouti just came here to New Haven to receive um, the Gandhi Peace Award with Ralph Nader. Mm-hmm. And um, he was uh, he's the co-founder of the uh, BDS movement, and he was uh, kept from coming. He was told he couldn't come, and get, they tried to, uh, they trumped up, uh, false arrest, uh, false uh, fraud charges, but with a lot of pressure from the outside, he did come. He did receive the war, the award. He it was an absolutely beautiful speech that he gave, and there was press for it. So, I think slowly that kind of stuff, increasingly, people's support for Palestinians and their lack of human rights and and so forth is growing. So I think it would be good for people, journalists, to put that out there is not an unrealistic thing, but a possibility, because by everyone's account that looks at it closely, the two-state solution is simply a shimmer to increase um, Israel's capacity to take land. So, All right. Thanks for your call. You're um, welcome. I'm guessing Lakutists are not going to like the apartheid <laughs> analogy. Uh, you might <laughs> want to not use that around there. They're going to apartheid? What are you talking about? We don't have apartheid here. Anyway, Mark, you get the last word. Well, I, th- I, I think it's it's certainly true that, that on the Israeli left, uh, such as it is, and, and uh, you know, in the, in, the, in the peace community in, in Israel, uh, that kind of a one-state solution uh, is uh, popular. Um, I think that what is where I would take exception uh, to the remarks is the idea that Israelis 
uh, as a whole uh, are you know susceptible to the pressure that BDS brings. They're they're angry about it. They fight it. Certainly, the Jewish community in America fights it. Um, uh, but uh, but many people uh, who are very sympathetic and and supportive of Palestinian rights uh, find that offensive, uh, particularly. Um, you know, as it relates to to higher education and so on, I th- I think it's a um, it's a highly problematic m- means of pressuring Israel. Uh, that's a discussion that obviously is a long one, but um, but I'm not sure that BDS has has really helped uh, advance the idea of a one state solution of that sort. But you know, there is there is significant support for it. All right, we're going to have to stop here. Thanks to Mark Silk uh, so much. Uh, you're a free man unless you uh, know more about star KIC 8462852 than I think you do. Um, who, who, who knows? You might, though. Uh, but very ma- many thanks to Mark Silk, director of the Leonard Greenberg Center for the Study of Religion in Public Life at Trinity College. We'll be back with Lauren Grush, a science reporter for The Verge, to tell you about the, well, we don't know it's an alien megastructure. We don't know it isn't. They put money in their hearts and God where their mouth is. They put money in their hearts and God. Oh, I see. I was waiting for the little thank yous and stuff like that to play. Uh, All right. Should I do the thank yous then? All right. Then uh, thank you to Jonathan McNichol for producing today's show and to uh, Katie Tularski. She's on the board right now. Tomorrow's show will be as close to a full public policy show as we ever do. We're going to talk about um, what's really wrong with the American healthcare system, why none of the fixes really fix it. Uh, We're going to be talking with Elizabeth Rosenthal, who's written an amazing book called uh, American sickness. We're devoting the entire show to it. All right. Joining us now, just to get your mind off the troubles here on planet Earth, let's talk about some of the troubles uh, 1,300 light years away from us. Uh, and to do that, Lauren Grush, the science reporter for The Verge, is joining us right now. So uh, first of all, welcome to our show. Hi. Thanks for having me. And we've been alluding to this all, all along during the run-up to this uh, on the show, but we're going to be talking about what is often called the weirdest star in our galaxy. It's KIC 8462852. If you get to know it a little bit better, you can maybe call it Tabby's star. Uh, and it's what, that's what his friends call it after the astronomer who discovered it. So why is it the weirdest star in our galaxy? Well, the, there's two reasons. It fluctuates. Its light fluctuates quite a bit more so than we would expect from, say, a planet passing in front of it. So uh, from past data that we've got, we've seen it dim up to 20%, which is just a huge amount in terms of, you know, uh, celestial standards. And then uh, another thing is it's completely unpredictable. We don't really know exactly when these light dips are going to happen, which is also odd because if you have something orbiting a star, you know, it usually follows a predictable pattern. So it's just very strange, and there's really no model that we have that fits what we've seen so far. Right. So uh, serious astronomers uh, will say, well, like extraterrestrials should be the last, little green men should be the last thing that you think about, (laughs) the very last explanation you consider. But, you know, you have this situation here where nothing with a regularized orbit seems to be a plausible culprit. I mean, they can now, you know, using supercomputers, just crunch this stuff out indefinitely. If there was a pattern to this flickering, 
they would have seen it by now and they would understand what it was or at least have working hypotheses about it. But if there's no pattern, if it's randomized, then you start wondering what else it could possibly be. And I guess at least among some segments of the astronomy community, it's not considered considered totally irresponsible to wonder if somebody, quote unquote, is doing something there. No, it's definitely not irresponsible. In fact, that's kind of the reason we do all of this. You know, it's the underlying reason that we don't really talk about, you know, is we're searching for a habitable planet that maybe that they could support life. Of course, when it comes to explaining things that we see, yeah, aliens should always be the absolute last explanation that we turn to. But it's it's going to, you know, keeping it on the table isn't unheard of. And um, I think what happened, though, was one, uh, one astronomer, Jason Wright, told The Atlantic a couple of years, or in 2015, that maybe this was the result of alien megastructures surrounding the star. And so that kind of uh, was the tipping point for people, you know, being very obsessed with this star. And so we should say that one of the reasons we're talking about this is it's acting up right now, right? What's it doing? Yeah. So, so. When we first found out about the star, we didn't see it happen in real time. Um, Dr. Boyajian, the person that the star is named after, uh, she found these fluctuations in past data taken from NASA's Kepler spacecraft, which is out in space and it's hunting for planets. So she only saw it from things that we had already, you know, that had already been done. We hadn't seen that this happen in real time. So we've been monitoring it for the past year and a half to catch one of these fluctuations in action. So this is the first time that the star has fluctuated and dimmed um, since we've been monitoring it in real time. And so that's why everybody's so excited, because it gives us this opportunity to kind of use all the telescopes that we have to observe it while it's happening. Because Kepler only sees things in a certain uh, you know, light spectrum, but you can use other telescopes that are looking in the infrared or other kinds of light spectrums to kind of break apart the colors, can give you an idea of how hot whatever this object is, you know, in front of the star, it gives us a lot of more clues to tell us what might be happening. Right. And so, I mean, in terms of the response on this, and I can't remember where I read this. I read your article first because you're my favorite science writer. I have Lauren, Lauren, <laughs> oh, Gr- Lauren Grush on, on Google Alert. But so, <laughs> so it might have been in your article. But so, somewhere I read somebody saying every telescope that could be trained on this thing right now is trained on this thing, right? Exactly. We're, we're basically dependent on the Kepler for, you know, the real kind of uh, funky, exciting data about this. Uh, but I guess that's the case, though. It's sort of like a movie. Everybody runs to their telescopes and starts looking at this thing. Yeah, and that was kind of what um, the astronomers were dealing with over the weekend was juggling all of these observation requests because they wanted to time it out and make sure that they had a, an, an arsenal of telescopes pointing at this thing, you know, whenever it would benefit it uh, the most study. And, um, you know, they didn't really know when to expect this to happen. So it kind of, I mean, they were on their guard a little bit because there had been like a dip in, in April. So they thought, okay, well maybe something big is coming. And sure enough, a month later, you know, the, uh, a big one happened. Um, but still they, you know, they didn't, they can't plan for it because it's an unpredictable star. So they had to be on their guard and then they had to kind of scramble to, get as many telescopes as they could pointing at this thing as it's happening. I think for now, though, I just saw that Jason Wright said um, the event is probably over. It's back to being a normal, you know, uh, brightness. Um, But it sounds like they got a lot of data from this past weekend. So hopefully we'll hear what they got in the next couple of weeks. 
I suppose the other thing to think about here, I hadn't really thought about it until this minute, but it's not really happening now anyway. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Whatever they're doing up there, they did it a really long time ago. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's how all these things work. We're never actually seeing anything in real time, to be honest. <laughs> All right. Well, my theory is that it's an advanced civilization, thirsty for energy, trying to extract power from its stars, so they had to build something around it. What's your theory? Right. Well, I mean, that that is kind of what people have been talking about. There's been this talk of Dyson spheres, yeah. which is this concept of a huge structure that is encompassing the star, and it uses the star's energy for some kind of advanced civilization. Um, as a science and space journalist, I will follow astronomers uh, – protocol and I will not immediately assume aliens. It's not usually never aliens. Could be I've a, never been aliens to this point. Right. So. Could, could, have been a, could be a signal too, but a very old signal. Well, Lauren Grush, science reporter for The Verge. We do uh, encourage everybody to read some more about this in Lauren's reporting. Uh, and But um, thank you for joining us today and yeah. covering this. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So um, that's going to wrap up the scramble for today, other than to thank everybody who I'm trying to remember who played uh, Bill Curry in the script. And I, I'm not coming up with it. I think maybe it's Leonard Nimoy or something. Um, so uh, thanks to Katie Tularski for jumping on the board to help us out. Wolfie's not here right now. Jonathan McNichol jumped into the Betsy Kaplan seat because she's not here right now. Uh, and we've had a really fun show here today. Tomorrow, I really want to emphasize we don't do this this often. Betsy's producing this show. I'm pretty sure we have no other guest except Elizabeth Rosenthal. That was sort of the way we talked about it. Because I think this book is that important. Whenever I hear conversations about our healthcare system, I always feel like they're not, they're like telling this one little broken off quadrant of the story and not the rest of it. So tomorrow we're going to try to tell you the story of why our healthcare system is the way it is and what would really fix it. And you know, spoiler, it's certainly not the AHCA or any of the other current Republican solutions, but it's probably not also also not Obamacare, not as currently constituted. So we'll tell you why suspense is building. If the megastructure doesn't kill us all, we'll be back tomorrow. They watch the earth's light flicker and fail, flicker and flicker. I really badly wanted to make a joke about the glowing orb in Saudi Arabia and how small it made Trump's hands look, but I'm pretty sure that the very existence of the glowing orb means the time for joking has passed.